when we speak about the seven statuses in which the Lord died, um, we're, we may not be going, we're not going in a uh, particular thematic sequence, okay? It's just take each one as, as they are. They're all kind of related to each other, but um, don't try to find some kind of thread that, you know, why we said this one first and then that one. Um, <clears throat> we have to actually move things around a little bit to, so that this brother is able to participate. So um, with that, uh, let's begin. Um, you know, when, when, when the Lord Jesus died, some things happened, uh, like right as he died. When, when he uh, was uh, crucified on the cross, when he uh, 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 surrendered up his, his spirit, when he died, um, a number of things happened. And we see this in Matthew chapter 27, um, verses 50 through 54. And so, um, thank you, Trevor. <clears throat> Okay, so maybe we can take a look at those real quick. Um, Matthew 27, verses 50 uh, through 54. Um, yeah, okay. So he cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit and um, Let's see, maybe Renata, could you read verse 51 for us? And behold, the veil of the temple was split in two uh, from top to bottom, and the earth was shaken, and the rocks were split. Right. So actually here we see two things. One, the veil of the temple was split in two. And so that veil separated the holy, of, the holy place from the holy of holies. And this indicates that the separation between man and God was abolished. It is just, is quite a statement. You know, uh, right as he's crucified, the veil is rent from top to bottom. That means now the distance between God and man that had existed prior to the Lord's redemption, now that distance has been eliminated. And God and man now can meet together uh, to have fellowship in Christ. Okay, the second thing is the earth was shaken and the rocks were split. And this points to the fact that the base of Satan's rebellion was shaken. And the strongholds of his earthly kingdom, because and we've covered this on previous dive sessions, the Lord even refers to him as the prince of the world. And when he's speaking to the Lord in during the temptation in Luke, he refers to all the kingdoms of the world as being given to him. So the fact that the earth is shaken and the rocks are split indicates that his earthly kingdom the strongholds were broken. This was another one of the effects of the Lord's crucifixion. And then, uh, okay, let's uh, go on. Renata, can we read 52 and 53? Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> and the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered into the holy city and appeared to many. Mm. So, okay, this is quite something. Um, you see here the effect of, of his death uh, is that suddenly the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, and these refer to the Old Testament saints, um, they're raised. So this indicates that the power of death in Hades was conquered and subdued. And it also points to the releasing power of the death of Christ. In other words, uh, through his death, the divine life, and we'll get into this later, the divine life was released. And this had an impact, so much so that even the Old Testament saints in the tombs in the city of Jerusalem began to come out and to appear and to, and to speak to people. Okay. Um, and, and well, it says they appeared to many. Okay, now let's go to the last one. Now the centurion, the 54. Can you read that one? Now the centurion and those with him guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that happened, became greatly frightened, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something. So even the centurion, even the heathen Gentiles who were guarding the Lord on the cross when they saw it, they had the realization divinity was involved in this. This is not an ordinary, typical death. Um, his death actually had a tremendous impact, which we will, actually, we will unpack during this dive session. Um, they beheld the outward visible form. And what they beheld, just outwardly and visibly, produced in them, and remember, these are probably the same ones who mocked him and may have even been involved in his scourging. These ones, so it's not as if they're fans of, of, of him, uh, but these ones, when they saw him die, their genuine, honest, immediate response is, truly, this was the Son of God. So his death, even just outwardly and visibly to those who were right around there and who didn't believe into him, immediately the impact was, this is the Son of God. Okay, so this is what Matthew 27, 50 through 54 just kind of unfolds to us. And now we're going to unpack a lot of what is behind, behind these, um, these verses. Um, before we do that, though, we need to cover a really critical aspect of uh, the Lord's death, and, and Trevor will, will, will guide us through that. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to actually, uh, this is Hebrews 9.14. And we've, we might have hit this before. Um, Nadine, can you, can you uh, hit this verse for me? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, so there's, there's an interesting uh, kind of fun fact about this verse 
uh, this is the only verse in the Bible that says the spirit is eternal. Mm. That's something that you might want to write down. So this, this verse says this, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Okay. So you have to understand something that's really interesting. One, one is if you go back, I, I going back to uh, those verses that, that Nathaniel was just hitting. Uh, there's there's a cool part that I want to show you really quick, and it's related to the eternal spirit. If you see in verse 52, it says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Okay, so this is this is interesting because actually in the gospels, you know, we we very commonly use the word saints all the time. You know, we're all the saints over there. Do you know the saints? When did you meet the saints? You know, we just, you know, we use it in all these contexts. Okay. But at that time, saint was not, it actually it was used one time in all of the gospels. And that one time is in this verse, in verse 52. And the reason why, actually, Nadine, can you tell me the reason why it says saints here in the gospel of Matthew when it's referring to Old Testament people. Do you know what the word saints means? What is its meaning? Um, isn't it something, I think like if I, a vague memory of like the Greek word has something to do with being holy or something, the holy ones, or I don't know. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like to be sanctified or saved ones, you know. It's the saved ones. So this is interesting. This is interesting because how are the Old Testament believers, how are they saints? In order to get saved, I have to have more than just belief because I have to have the spirit in me saving me, right? Yeah. So now we're talking about the Old Testament believers having the spirit. Paul Brown, how do you reconcile that? What do you think, bro? He's muted. Paul uh, Brown is muted. So this, this is um, at the resurrection when they were raised and came up with Christ, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is, this is cool, bro. This is cool. Hey, let's look at this. Let's look at this. Actually, I have a question for you, Paul Brown. When when were you regenerated? When uh, I first believed, and 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 the Holy Spirit entered in. Paul, I would I would agree with you, and disagree with you at the same time. Okay. Because there's actually two aspects of this. There's the eternal perspective, and then there's the time perspective. Okay. Oh, right, but in yeah. a moment of time is what you just said. Yeah. Okay. But actually, according to first Peter one, three, we're, uh, we might hit this a couple times in this, in this dive session. So bear with me here. Um, can you hit verse three? Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has regenerated us unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so according to this verse, when were you regenerated? At the resurrection. Yes, bro. You were regenerated the moment Christ resurrected 
from an eternal perspective. But how is that possible? You didn't even exist yet. Okay. And actually, all the other believers had already died. Well, the reason that's possible, and this is this is this this is why Hebrews 9:14 is one of my favorite verses ever. Because if you don't have this verse, there's a lot of pieces that fall apart. And there's a lot of things that could not be explained. Okay. So every single, there's seven things, there's seven things that the Lord accomplished on the cross that we're going to go through today. There's seven of them. Okay. And the thing is, none of them would be experiential to you or be able to be applied to you without this verse. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the thing is, as the Lord is dying on the cross, he's offering himself up through the eternal spirit. It doesn't just say through the spirit. He offered himself up through the eternal spirit. So every single thing that he's accomplishing on the cross can be applied eternally yeah. outside of time. Okay. So this is this is why this is why it's so this is why it's so awesome, bro. So that's why in Matthew, when it says that the, the saints came out of the tombs, they were regenerated. Oh my goodness, those those people were actually regenerated. They were Old Testament believers that walked out of the tombs and they were sanctified ones. How in the world? Well, the reason is, is because they had been, uh, the eternal spirit was able to do that to them, okay? So this is, this is a very key point before we jump into these seven things, because Nathaniel and I, and eventually Daniel, who's going to join, we don't want to just go through these things and um, have this historical Jesus, okay? So for most Christians... And even us, a lot of times, Jesus is historical. He's either in the past or he will be in the future. But how, how can I experience him right now? So hopefully during this, during this time, we, we're not only going to explain to you what the seven things are, but we also want to bring out this aspect of you can actually experience all seven of these things. And the reason you can is because of the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. So you got to never forget this verse, Hebrews 9.14, the eternal spirit. Okay, so that's literally, um, I mean, I don't know if Nathaniel wants to add anything. I mean, that's all I got. I just wanted to tell him about the eternal spirit. Eternal spirit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, I suppose at some point, I mean, because, because uh, maybe I'll just this very briefly and that is that um, this also points to the eternal efficacy of his blood uh, and we'll get into this more when we talk about some of the other statuses um, that he in, in which he died but um, the uh, you could say that maybe the, the, the most precise way to say it is that um, God 
has blood. Okay, and we know this from Acts 20, 28, where it says that he purchased, God purchased the church with his own blood. Okay, uh, but we need to be clear about what we mean by that. And the Bible is very clear. Okay, so um, uh, let's see. Uh, maybe, Paul, can you read Acts 20, 28? Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has placed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained through his own blood. Yeah. So his own blood, right? And then, um, uh, okay, we have to be clear here. The only begotten son, God, in his deity, in the Godhead, mm -hmm. he doesn't have blood. Okay. But... In 1 John 1, 7, it says the blood of Jesus, his son. Okay, let's go to 1 John 1, 7. And this is why the death of Christ as a person of dual natures, that is of both humanity and divinity, is extremely important. Okay? Uh, he died as a God-man. And uh, Paul, can you read First John 1, 7? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. Okay, so it's the blood of Jesus, his son. And the blood of Jesus, of course, refers to his humanity. His son refers to his divinity. Okay, and so... What you can say is that the blood shed by Jesus is eternal. The blood of a man mingled with the divine element, the element of eternity. And so the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, God's own blood, is eternal. Uh, we just have to state the truth here. This is very mysterious, um, but this gets to how... Um, his blood is eternally effective. He died in his humanity and with his divinity. So his humanity qualified him to die for us. But his divinity makes his death and, his, and as a result, his blood in his humanity eternally effective. Okay? So this is just kind of a statement of the, of the truth. And so this should cause us to realize that our redemption, it was free for us, but it wasn't free for God. It cost him his only begotten son, okay, whom he made the God-man in the flesh with human blood to shed, a blood that is eternally effective. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll just add that much to uh, what... Uh, uh, Trevor was saying about the eternal spirit. And so now we're going to talk about the statuses. We're going to talk about, and we there are seven, okay? We're not going to go in depth into each one because otherwise we would be here for a while. This would be a true dive session. Um, so some of these we're going to jump into a little bit more and others we'll kind of just... Um, Slide by. Yeah fly by. Okay.
So the first one that I think we're going to cover is the last atom. Okay. And uh, can we, um, Trevor, can we go to Genesis 5 2? Yes. This is a very interesting verse. Okay. Let's see. Genesis 5 2. 5, 2. Um, Nadine, could you read that for us? Yeah. Um, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and called their name Adam on the day when they were created. Whose name, Adam? Their name. Isn't that interesting? Their name. He called their name Adam. Of course, this, this ties completely in with uh, the book of Romans, and maybe we can jump over to Romans uh, 5.12. Um, but if you go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, maybe you can read that for us, Nadine. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and through sin death, and thus death passed unto all men, because all uh, have sinned. Right. And um, Trevor, can you go to verse 19 too? I think it's in 519. Um, yeah. Can you, can you read that one too? For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were constituted sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be constituted righteous. Right. So this points to the fact that uh, in Adam, we all have sinned. Okay. And <clears throat> even in Genesis, uh, there's this thought that uh, uh, mankind is included in Adam. Uh, and then, of course, in Romans 5.12, through one man, sin entered into, world, in, entered into the world. And this has actually been passed on now to all men. And in verse 19, we see that through the disobedience of the one man, the many were constituted sinners. So uh, this is important, an important base or foundation for us to appreciate uh, one of the statuses in which Christ died, which is as the last Adam. He died as the, as the last, as the last Adam, or as uh, Charles Wesley put it in his uh, hymn, which many of us may be familiar with. Uh, you know, "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," and um, in one of the verses, and I really love that hymn, by the way. And we should sing it sometime. If you haven't sung it recently, you should just go back and sing it, and sing all four verses. A lot of times I only hear the first verse or the second verse sung. And to me, that's an absolute tragedy because especially the last two verses are incredible. And one of the last verses says, final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy, in thy love. And so uh, this is a reference to Christ as the last Adam. And uh, to get into this more, we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, which is where we actually get uh, this uh, status, in which the Lord died as the last Adam. And so, Nadine, can you read this for us? So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, uh, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Isn't that, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times we're familiar with this last phrase, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And that itself is an incredible statement. 
but I just want to focus for a bit on the, this phrase, the last Adam. And so what this indicates is that Adam is brought to a conclusion. Uh, and we all are included in Adam. And uh, in Romans 6.6, 6, it says that our old man was crucified with him. So the first Adam uh, and all that's included in him was brought to the cross by the Lord. And the Lord, as the last Adam, he, uh, uh, as the last Adam, uh, was the, the old man was then crucified uh, on the cross. And so in 1 Corinthians, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.30. Sorry, if, uh, chapter 1, verse 30. Can we read that one, Nadine? Yeah. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, amen, who became wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Right, so of him, that is of God, we are in who? In Christ. Christ. We are in Christ. And so when Christ, as the last Adam, died on the cross, we all were included in that. And then you put this together with Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Okay? So this, this is uh, a very important for us to know experientially and we'll drive the point home with this last verse galatians 2 20. i okay. i am crucified with christ and it is no longer i who live but it is christ who lives in me and the life which i now live in the flesh i live in faith the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right. So Paul actually says, I am crucified with Christ. Okay. So when Christ died um, as the last Adam, he brought the old man, he brought Adam to a conclusion. And we were included in that death. And because we've been included in that death, that gives us the base to not have to live anymore according to our old man. We need to see actually a vision of the fact that our old man has been crucified. Uh, many times we don't live that way, though. Many times we live as if our old man is alive and well. We just live in our, in our old man. We just live in Adam. Uh, and we need to realize and see that actually on the cross, the Lord terminated the old man. And he did so as, as the last Adam. Okay. Um, there's actually, in our experience, you could say, uh, there's kind of two kinds of death. You know, Adam, he couldn't crucify himself, okay? He had to be brought to a conclusion. So the Lord did that. That was accomplished through his death. 
Um, but a lot of times in our experience, we can, uh, we, we, we uh, can either experience the death of Christ, or sometimes we experience what you might call the death of Adam, okay? And what do we mean here by death? Um, okay, I think the best is just to give an example. And I'll give it from my own experience. You know, um, my wife, she's working on her PhD. And in the morning, I'm with one or both of the kids. And, uh, you know, around one o'clock, we do a handover, okay? And, um, and then I start working on my stuff, and then she's with the kids. Um, and sometimes around one o'clock, like, I have stuff that I really have to work on. And I can start to feel a little anxious, and, you know, she has to finish some things up. And um, inwardly, it, I, my, my temperature can start to rise, okay? And so as my temperature starts to rise, um, there's a chance, you know, I, I realize, okay, I, I, I need to be reasonable here. And uh, I shouldn't just, you know, ex expect my, my wife to be able to just drop everything she's doing and do this because, you know, it's, it's not so simple. Okay, I can reason with myself and, and all these things, but eventually, um, that only goes so far. And I either, you know, just get uh, really anxious or upset, or I can open to the Lord. So the death of Adam is actually terrible because you're, I'm essentially trying to crucify myself. I'm basically saying, hey, okay, um, I know I need to be a good husband. Uh, I can do it apart from the Lord. And so uh, I'm just going to try to do the right thing. But at a certain point, that just doesn't work. And I feel troubled. I feel bitter. My wife's not happy. It's just not pleasant. But the death of Christ is actually very sweet. And I think a lot of times in our experience, we um, confuse the death of Adam with the death of Christ. When we hear you need to die to yourself. You need, you, you just have to accept you've been crucified with Christ. You need to embrace that. A lot of times when we hear that, we immediately think, oh, this is a very terrible and um, not so pleasant experience where I have to put to death everything that I, that I don't like. Okay, it's, it's not so much that, it's that we have to turn to a person. We need a different person to be our person. We need Christ. And when we have Christ, we have his death. And his death is sweet. Okay? So actually, when we turn to him, there's the supply to just be what you need to be. So when I turn to him, there's no anxiety. There's no pressure. There's no anger. My wife and I execute the handover, and it's all good, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes later than when it was going to be. No problem. Why? Because 
we have this wonderful person. And so as she's enjoying this person, in this person is included his death. As I'm enjoying this person, in his person, his death is also included. And so you don't have to try to, uh, uh, to nail yourself to the cross. It's actually impossible. Do you ever, I don't know if you, you know, if you're, we've talked about the cross. You can't, you can't do that. It just doesn't work. So it doesn't work experientially either. Uh, we need this wonderful person. And as Paul said in Philippians 3.10, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So the base of our experience of Christ is actually to be conformed to his death. The only way we can be conformed to his death is by the power of his resurrection. Okay, so that's just a little bit on um, Christ as the last Adam. And so now uh, we're going to go on to uh, Christ as the firstborn. Okay, he's the firstborn of all creation. This is a very interesting um, point. Okay, so can, uh, Trevor, can we go to Colossians 1.15? And maybe I can ask uh, Renata, could you read this for us? Colossians 1.15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? And then read the first phrase of verse 16. Because in him all things were created. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> He's the firstborn of all creation in verse 15. And then in verse 16, it says, in him all things were created. So how does that work? What do you think, Renata? How is he both the firstborn of all creation and, and he's also the creator? Well, he is like the part of the triune God. And mm -hmm. As the son, he's probably the firstborn, but then there's the God who's the creator and they're kind of the same person mm. okay yeah i mean to me it's it's really uh i don't i'm just thankful paul said stuff like this because i would never have had the boldness to say anything but paul just said he's the image of the invisible god and he's the firstborn of all creation which means he's the head of all creation um and Yes, as you pointed out, in verse 16, in him all things were created. So he is the creator. And this points, again, to kind of his dual status. On the one hand, he is the creator. On the other hand, he is a creature. And in his death, um, notice a few, several verses down, maybe you can read Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, through him. Actually, we can we just stop there. Sorry, thanks. Notice, it says reconcile what to himself in Colossians 1.20? All things. 
Yeah, it doesn't just say like all people. Mm. It says all things. So this is an aspect of his death. In his death, not only, um, and we'll get into this later when we talk about Christ dying as the peacemaker to make peace, um, but actually as the firstborn of all creation, uh, he reconciled all things, all creation to himself. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 9. And can you read that for us? Uh, nine, right? Yeah. But we see Jesus, who was made a little inferior to all the angels because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death on behalf of everything. Okay, so do you see that? You see, it says he might taste death on behalf of, of what? Everything. Everything right? Not just mankind, right? But he might taste death actually on behalf of all creation. So um, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I consider the Lord's death, I, I really just consider it in light of myself or of maybe my fellow man. But actually, all of creation needed to be reconciled to God. And as the firstborn of all creation, he died on the cross as, uh, as a creature. And he accomplished redemption for all creatures. Um, and we can actually see this again uh, with the, um, the veil of the temple. Okay. So remember the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. Um, what was on the veil of the temple. Does anyone remember what was on the veil of the temple? <laughs> was it cherubim? <laughs> I don't know. That's what Trevor just did. Yeah. Did you say, Paul? It's some kind of angel. Was it cherubims? Or? Cherubim. Okay. So the cherubim were actually embroidered on the veil of the temple. All right. And in Ezekiel chapter one, it actually refers to the cherubim as living creatures. Okay. So we see from this that actually the cherubim on the veil, they represent living creatures. And so the veil of the temple re being rent typifies Christ's flesh on the cross being rent, his humanity being Right? And so uh, upon his humanity were all the creatures because he's the firstborn of all creation. So in his flesh, he bore all the creatures. So when the veil in the temple was torn, the cherubim that were embroidered on it was, was also, they were also torn. And this indicates that when um, the flesh of Christ was crucified, all the creatures born by him were crucified as well, okay? So through the death of Christ, sin, sins, the flesh, the old man, and all the creatures, they were all dealt with, okay? So his death is really, truly, it's all-inclusive, okay? 
Um, I'm sorry that I keep talking. It's just how the sequence works right now. So I'm going to jump from uh, the um, firstborn of all creation to him being a man in the flesh. Okay. And then um, after a man in the flesh, I think we will uh, have our, our brother um, speak about the peacemaker and then we'll do the last two uh, statuses. Okay. So, um, as a man in the flesh, we need to go to John chapter one. And we've covered this in some detail in, a, actually in, I think it was in the third dive session, um, we covered this and, and Trevor will talk about this more when we, when we talk about, um, Christ dying as the bronze, bronze serpent. But before we get to that, we need to see that he died as a man in the flesh and what that means. Okay. Um, so John chapter one, uh, let's see. Um, uh, Nadine, could you read um, John 1, 1 for us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very good. Okay, so the Word was God. Now let's go to John 1, 14. And, uh, sorry. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and reality. Okay, so... The word who was God became flesh, right? So uh, this, uh, this is, a, this is, well, it's just amazing. Okay. As the word, he's God, he becomes flesh, and then he dies on the cross as a man in the flesh. And we can say that based on 1 Peter 3.18. Okay. So we see from John 1. 1 and one fourteen that God became a man. He became a man in the flesh. And then, Trevor, can we go to 1 Peter 3, um, 18? Okay. Um, Nadine, can you um, read that for us? For Christ also had, has suffered once for sins, the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Mm. On the one hand, being put to death in the flesh, but on the other, made alive in the spirit. So I just want to emphasize one point here, that uh, he was put to death in the flesh. Okay? So, on the, on, uh, the word who, became, who is God became flesh, and then on the cross... He died in the flesh. Now we need to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For that which the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh of sin, and concerning sin, condemned sin in the flesh. 
Okay. So he died on the cross in the flesh. Romans 8.3, though, clarifies for us um, what that means. Now, does it say that God sent his son in the reality of the flesh of sin? No. What, what does it say? There's in the likeness. Exactly. So this is a really big point. He didn't send him in the reality of the flesh of sin. He sent him in the likeness of the flesh of sin. Um, and so as a man in the flesh, he only had the likeness of the flesh of sin. And we'll see this more with uh, the bronze serpent. Um, he did not have the sinful nature of the flesh of sin. Yet, nevertheless, somehow his humanity was still related to sin. We have to be clear, though, he had no sin. He was in the likeness of the flesh of sin. So you'll see, you see, if you see the succession, the word who was God became flesh. On the cross, he died in the flesh, and he did so um, in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And this was so that God could condemn, because he, he died in the likeness of the flesh of sin, God could condemn his, God could condemn sin in the flesh, okay? Um, I want to look at one more verse, and that verse is 2 Corinthians um, 5.21. Him who did not know sin, he made sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay. So he didn't know sin, but he was made sin on our behalf. So you have to put this verse together with Romans 8.3. You, you can't just take it out of context. So he was in the likeness of the flesh of sin. Um. Trevor will get into this more, but as the bronze serpent, you know, he is in the form of the serpent, but he doesn't have the poison of the serpent. And we've, we've covered this um, more in the, in the, in the past. So uh, maybe I could ask Renata, how would you describe based on hearing all this, if someone were to ask you, um, how can you say that Christ died in the, in the flesh, as a man in the flesh? What verses would you use? Well, first of all, in John 1, that he was, he, God became flesh. Mm -hmm. The word was God and God became flesh. Very good. Um, and uh, yeah, and if there would be further on questions, go to Romans eight. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very good. And then also, First Peter says explicitly that he First Peter three eighteen says explicitly that he died 
in the flesh. Mm. So this, this, that's, I didn't realize mm. until getting into this actually how important that verse is because it actually links John 1 and one John 1, 1 and John 1, 14 to Romans 8, 3. And so that it kind of provides this connection. So he's the word of God. He is God. He became flesh. He died in the flesh. Uh, and he did so as a man in the flesh, in the likeness of the flesh of sin, therefore allowing God to then um, condemn sin in the flesh. Okay. All right. I think we are now uh, going to move on to uh, the, uh, the peacemaker. Okay. So this is Christ's, um, Christ's uh, death uh, in his status as the peacemaker. And um, let's see, I'm going to go like this. And uh, hey, Daniel. Hey, Nathan. Daniel, good to see you. Good to see you. Okay. Um, can you say something more? I don't know. Can everybody see Daniel now? Yes. No. Well, I, I can't because I turned off my uh, self view. So I'm okay. happy with that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. So, Daniel. Um, We've already, we've covered um, Christ dying as the last Adam, as the firstborn of all creation, and as a man in the flesh. And so I think we're now ready to go on to you as the peacemaker. We explained to the saints that we're not covering it in a particular thematic sequence. We're just covering each status. And then uh, after you finish, we'll go on to cover Christ as the bronze serpent and as the lamb of God and the grain of wheat. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So I'll hand it over to you. Oh, and okay. uh, we also have with us to help us, we have Renata, uh, okay. Herman, and Paul Brown, and Nadine uh, from South Africa. Paul's okay, in great. Germany and Renata's in Germany. Yeah. All righty. Well, I think Renata's the only one I know of the ones you just mentioned, but who knows? More of us might know each other by the end of this dive session. So, yeah. amen. Okay, so um, of all these seven aspects of Christ in his death on the cross, um, if you can, I'm just going to kind of like uh, zoom out for a second. Most of them deal with man's problem, or they either deal with Satan directly or sin. But they're all kind of like a putting to an end of something that is internal within man, maybe in his relationship with God or just his terrible condition. But this one aspect of Christ and his death on the cross as the peacemaker is very special. It's very much related to the, the fulfillment and the accomplishing of God's eternal purpose. So in Ephesians 2.14, we, we come to this aspect of Christ as the peacemaker. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 say, For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. He who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, the enmity. 
So what we immediately see here in, in this verse is that there, the peace that Christ made in his death is not the peace that's referred to in Romans 5.1. We were lacking peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified out of faith, we have peace toward God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an additional peace that was made for us. And Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, show us the both that Paul's referring to here. He who has made both one. Who are these two parties? Oh, great, it's on the screen. All right, so it says here uh, in verse 3, that by revelation the mystery was made known to me. As I have written previously in brief, by which in reading it, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. Mm. And now this, there are two points here, I'll just point out here. Number one, first of all, we have to, we have to latch onto this verse. The Apostle Paul says we can perceive his understanding. It is, it is the Father's good pleasure to reveal everything that, it, that is in his heart, not only to his apostles, but to all of his, all of his believers, all of his children, all of us. So we should say amen to that, by which in reading it, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. Now, what is the mystery of Christ? That's the second thing. Do we have a volunteer amongst at least the ones that I can see? What is the mystery of Christ in the Bible? In the Bible, the mystery of God is referred to several times as Christ. But here we see, what is the mystery of Christ? Does anyone know that? Yeah, I don't know if we're right. on. <laughs> yeah, you're on. Um, so the mystery of Christ is the church. Oh, you are blessed. You are blessed. Amen. You know, the, the Lord, your name is Nadine, is that right? Yeah. And you're from South Africa? Yes. Oh, it's wonderful. I can't wait to go to South Africa one day. But uh, so, you know, this is what you just spoke. This is the Father's good pleasure. He wants all, he wants all of his children to know that I saved you for the mystery of Christ, for the church. It's not just an individual matter. So that's great, Sister Nadine. Amen. All right, now we go on to verses five and six, which in other generations, and by the way, I'd just like to encourage, if anyone else has your video turned off and we know each other, turn your video on so we can also greet and partake in this fellowship together. Okay, verses five and six, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in spirit. So in the Old Testament age, you know, these wonderful prophets, they received visions, but they didn't know that one day there would be the church. And the second part of this is that this church would be composed of who in verse six? That in Christ Jesus, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. See, we have a rich history. The Lord's only been working on the Gentiles, you know, majority of us for the past 2,000 years. But before that, for the 2,000 years before that, he was working on one slice of humanity, 
called the Jews. Paul got the revelation here. He says that in Christ Jesus, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise through the gospel. Okay, so now we've seen in a nutshell what Paul's referring to here. This peace, he has made both one. Okay, so we can already see this is a peace between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Now we come to verse 15. Uh, finish up Hebrews chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Abolishing in his flesh the law of the commandments in ordinances. Was that Ephesians? Yeah, we're going back to chat, going back to chapter two, just where we were a second ago. All right. Okay. Thanks, Nathaniel. I'll work with you on, the, on this one. Okay. So uh, there we are. Now we're now we're at verse fifteen. So on the cross, Christ abolished in His flesh the law of the commandments and ordinances, that He might create the two Himself into one new man, so making peace. Now, I live in Israel. I live in a country where most people do not like to hear this. What? The commandments, which are ordinances, he abolished the Sabbath? I don't like to hear things like that. Circumcision? But hey, if God, if, if, if God, if, if, if God established it, he also has the right to abolish it. But later on, we'll see there are certain things in the law which he does not abolish because those match the nature of his being. Other things which are temporary in nature and are ritualistic, those can be introduced and those can be abolished. Okay, so now let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, because we just read that he might create the two in himself into one new man. So making peace. What is this one new man? It's described in many portions in the New Testament, and here is one of them. For even as the body is one, look at our body, it's one, it's one entity, and has many members, many members. Yet all the members of the body, being many, are one body. So also is the Christ. I wish right now, I'm going to scroll down. I wish I could see more faces. Oh, I can see more faces now. That's great. There's Brother, Brother Rick from Charlotte. Amen. I've known Rick for 30 years since I was a teenager. Amen. It's so precious to look at all these saints because we are members. This is it. When Paul wrote this, this, this we, we were referred to here. All the members of the body, being many, are one body. So also is the Christ. Mm. Wow, what an expression. The Christ. We all, Christ, just Christ. He's just the Savior, our husband. He's the one we love. But the Christ, the Christ is what we just read. All of these many members of the body that are both many yet one. This is it. This is all. That's an entirely different dive session. Okay, so now we, we're already starting to see that Christ died on the cross as the peacemaker to make all of these ones that are the members of the body 
at peace, mm. to be able to work out the body of Christ and to have the Christ in practice. So somebody asks you, uh, what church do you go to? You can say, I'm a member of, anyone want to volunteer? What are you a member of? The body of Christ. That's and right. That's right. And if you want to not give it so, I don't know, what's the word? Uh, you know, if you want to take it level by level, you could say, I'm a member of the Christ. And then they say, what is the Christ? Say, oh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, there's the, Greek, the article there in the Greek language. That's why it's there in English. The Christ. You see, what is the, the Christ composed of? All the members and for sure the head. But the, we, when we get on to the next verse here in verse 13, we'll see uh, this explanation of all these members again. For also in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all given to drink one spirit. Now, I'm going to get to this a little later, but we have to, for us to appreciate the verses that were written in the New Testament, we have to know our heritage. We have to know the people of God on the earth that were on the earth when these verses were written, which were the Jews in Israel. And we'll come to that a little later. But let's come, let's come back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And now let's come to verse 16. Right? In verse 16, Paul says, and might reconcile both in one body through the cross. So what is that? Okay. First of all, what does this not tell us? This, what this is not referring to is being reconciled to God. Romans 5.10 says, For if we, being enemies, were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So we were all enemies of God and we were reconciled to him. But that's not what this is referring to. This is a second kind of reconciliation. Humanity itself was at enmity. Might reconcile both. That's the Jews and the Gentiles in one body. So these two groups of people had no contact yeah. with each other for at least 2,000 years. Yet, from the very beginning, it was not so. God said, let us make Adam. Let, sorry, that's, that's Hebrew. Let us make man. Let us make man in our image. That was just all of humanity. All righty. Okay, so now, um, now let's start to consider what is, this, um, what is this enmity that existed in mankind. For that, we need to go back to, uh, let's stay in the same verses here, but we can see it right here. Um, the, uh, okay, actually, it's very good. In the verses, if you look at 11, verse 11, right up above, that's, okay, yeah. Therefore, remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh, those who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. You can already see right there that there was that arrangement needed for a couple, for 2,000 years, but 
that that is what is coming to an end here. You have these two, all of humanity was divided into two sections. Those that were circumcised, beginning with Abraham, and those that were not circumcised. That, it, that you were at that time apart from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And when you read this, just remember from other verses, especially in Romans, that uh, God has one people and he's grafting in He's grafting in more Gentile believers, which are the real Jews, into the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have become near in the blood of Christ. All right, now we come in verse 14. We, say, we see circumcision is one thing. Circumcision equals the middle wall of partition in verse 14, which also equals the enmity. So all of these ordinances of which are represented here by circumcision, they are all, this was that middle wall of partition and this was the enmity. Okay, so now we're gonna Start now. We're going to do a comparison between the moral aspects of the law and the ritualistic aspects of the law, because it was the ritualistic aspects of the law which were terminated by Christ. Okay. Alrighty. So now in Exodus chapter twenty, you gonna, can you pull that up, Nathaniel? Sister Eleanor, good to see you. You were here with us in Israel in February. Amen. And Sister Ruth in Switzerland, good to see you also. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Thanks for the waves. All right. So now we're going to come to, we're going to come to uh, the law when it was first given in Exodus chapter 22. And we're going to go through this and we're going to see what are some of these ritualistic aspects of the law and what are some of the moral aspects of the law because the lord said in matthew 5 as far as the moral aspects of the law those will by no means be abolished they they were only uplifted by the law all right so in verse 3 we see you shall have no other gods before me verse 2 i am jehovah your god and in other portions of the word it's just it's uh it's expounded you shall love the lord your with all your heart and with all your soul. Saints, this commandment will never be abolished. We will just love him to the uttermost, increasingly and increasingly. Um, what, what else do we have? In uh, the idols, the other gods, we will never, this will never be, this will never be nullified. The Lord will never be happy if we are loving other idols. Uh, serving them. Now let's come to verse. Uh, let's come to verse eight. Verse eight. This is purely a ritualistic um, commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, so as to sanctify. That's something temporary. I mean, just consider when we come into eternity future. All right. There's no more sun. There's no more moon. Will there be a Sabbath? No. So this is something just dispensational. And when the, the Lord instituted it 2,000 years before he was crucified on the cross, and then when he was crucified, he abolished it. 
this is the first example of one of the ordinances which was abolished. Paul makes known in other portions of the word like Colossians chapter 2, if somebody feels to celebrate days, they're free to do it. It's not something we make an issue of, but this is no longer something that pleases the Lord. Actually, read Isaiah chapter 1. Even there, was that 650 years approximately before the Lord came, the Lord already said, he said, your appointed days, your feasts, your new moons. He says, my soul loathes them. I don't desire them anymore. Meaning at a certain point in time, he brought them into being. But afterwards, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that anymore. So this is an illustration um, of, one, uh, of the ritualistic aspect of the law. Okay, now other ones. Verse 13 uh, actually, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. This is something that we will never graduate from. As long as we're in the flesh, as long as we are human beings on the earth, and we have mothers and fathers that are alive, we honor them. Okay, This is not something ritualistic. This is something from the heart. Because we trace our lineage back, we eventually come to God as the source of our existence. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. These were never abolished. You shall not te uh, testify with false testimony. Lying is never excusable. Coveting, this is even deeper. This is, these are all God's nature, and these will never go anywhere. Okay, so there. Now, in Exodus 20, we have, uh, we've gone through the uh, comparison of the ritualistic versus the moral aspects of the law. Okay, now in, um, start, uh, in Deuteronomy 13, uh, you can pull it up if you'd like to, Nathaniel. Um, yeah, it's quick. You'll see there's a whole list there of things of what the children of Israel could eat, could not eat. Um, if you scroll down, you'll get down a list of all the things that they couldn't eat and what they could eat. This is, once again, these are ritualistic things. This has nothing to do with morality. This has nothing to do with our, our heart before the Lord. Um, actually, what these represent, they represent the 613 ordinances and commandments that exist in the Bible. I live in a country in Israel where the Jews say that 10 commandments, that's for, that's for everyone, and even they themselves are not that clear about that. But the 613 commandments and ordinances, all these, you know, minuscule things, they, that's, what, that's what's for us to fulfill. Now, some of them truly represent the heart of God. You can see some of them are so, they just show you the kind heart of God, how he cared for widows, how he cared for the poor, Leave the, uh, the corners of your fields. Don't glean everything. Leave those. Don't be greedy. Things like that, that's not going anywhere. But uh, in chapter, is that, oh, wait, did I tell you chapter Deuteronomy 13? I, that, uh, I don't think that was the chapter I was referring to. Sorry. Um, it was another one referring to uh, what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. I apologize. That's, that's the wrong, wrong chapter. But anyway, um, uh, uh, when we come to Acts chapter 10, now let's come to Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. And in this section of the word, 
will see the burden that was upon the people of God. Peter was born in the old dispensation. He was born as a Jew under the law. And he was, you know, uh, he was, uh, um, he was, in, he was ingrained with, with all of these ordinances, all of these different kinds of animals that you couldn't eat, like in, the, in that portion of Deuteronomy. Nathaniel, if you get it, maybe you could find it or Trevor. Um, uh, Trevor's the one operating the, the, the iPad, but <clears throat> I think it's Deuteronomy 14. Yeah. Okay, 14, thanks. It's a slip of Okay, so there it says, you know, don't eat any, uh, you know, all these different kinds of animals. All right, but now, at this point in Acts chapter 10, the Lord has already died on the cross. He's already crucified all of the ritualistic aspects of the law, which was the enmity. And now, he, come, he finds Peter in Yafo, that's today's Tel Aviv. And Peter is on the, um, on the rooftop praying, and in verse 11... Peter beholds heaven open, and a certain vessel like a great sheet descending, being let down by four corners onto the earth, in which were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of heaven. And a voice came to him, rise up, Peter, slay and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common and unclean. I have kept a kosher diet my whole life. Oh, I feel so bad for people. <laughs> They're not good there. I, um, anyways, I, I live in a society of people that, uh, that are, I don't know. Um, I'll just be honest with you, saints. A lot of times the verse that comes back to me. Uh, I forget where it is in the Gospels, but the Lord says it, and I think both in Matthew and Mark. He says, you make the traditions of men the commandments of God. Mm. Don't make the traditions of men the commandments of God. There's a difference. All right, verse 13, and a voice came to him, rise up, Peter, slay and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common and unclean. A voice came to him a second time. The things that God has cleansed do not make common. Now, at this point, Peter's clear. And I believe Peter was clear from the very beginning. Because at the end of Matthew, on the mountain in Galilee, remember that after the Lord was crucified and resurrected, he said, meet me on the mountain. And at that mountain, he told them a very special word. He told them he was going to send him to all the nations of the earth. And according to their knowledge of the Old Testament, they knew that the animals represent all the different nations of the earth. And he was also showing to them that, that these old, all these old ordinances were crucified on the cross. And actually, they're not just two separate topics, because the next portion of the word that we're going to come to is in Galatians chapter 2. Mm. And there we see that not only did these did the Jewish believers, which were the very first ones, and the ones through whom that the Lord would bring the gospel to all the earth, they had to have those ordinances slain. Otherwise, they couldn't be used. 
Let's come to uh, Galatians chapter 2 now. So Galatians chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that's Peter, that's his Hebrew name, Kepha, uh, his, the new name the Lord gave him was Peter, stone. When, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, this is Paul speaking, because he stood condemned. For before some came from James, now if we had a map, we could see it, but Antioch, that's in the southeastern corner of today's Turkey. It's right where uh, Syria and Turkey come together in the, in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. All right, so, so Peter has left Jerusalem. He's gone all the way up to Antioch. And remember, there was the, the news of the, uh, of the uh, Gentiles being added to the church in Antioch. I believe that's in Acts chapter 11 or 12. Um, so Peter's up there. And uh, now let's read these verses here. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why is that? Okay, here's the answer. For, be some, for before some came from James, so other ones came up from the church in Jerusalem as well. Peter, he continually ate with the Gentiles, these new Gentile brothers are having love feasts together. <laughs> you know, the matter of our eating is very important. If, if we're eating in a way that we can't have fellowship with the saints, that's... That's a sad thing. Mm. But, when, but when they came, that means the brothers from Jerusalem that were sent from James, Peter began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing those of the circumcision. Okay, that's referring to the Jews. And the rest of the Jews, anyone know what the rest of these Jews are here? Would anyone like to volunteer? Are these the unbelieving Jews or the believing Jews in Antioch? Probably the believing ones. That's right. So there in the church in Antioch, there was a precious little church there. Even uh, I think Acts 13 tells us who the elders were. You had some of them were Jewish. One brother's name I think was Niger, so he was an African. You had Jews, Gentiles, Africans. I think there was even a Roman there. Um, Beautiful. So a church just with all different nationalities there. But the, here, verse 13, it's and the rest of the Jewish believers, that's what it's saying, also joined him in this hypocrisy. So Peter was not a good example. So that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. Barnabas is the one that Paul went on his first ministry journey with. It's in Acts, Acts chapter 14, was carried away in their hypocrisy. So now Paul speaks in verse 14, but when I saw that they were not walking in a straightforward way in relation to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Jew, the Gentiles to live like the Jews? There's no need to ask these new Gentile believers to go back and live the old Jewish lifestyle. Okay, amen. So that's... Uh, that's Acts chapter 10. All right, now we're going to come to how did Paul make it into the one new man? Paul spoke about the one new man in Ephesians chapter 2. And then we can see that as of Acts chapter 10 and Galatians chapter 2, Peter had not yet fully entered in. Now we're going to come to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to see 
our dear brother Paul as the pattern to all of us to entering into this one new man which was created by Christ on the cross. So with the, the Lord, he died as the peacemaker because he didn't want to just leave the earth filled with his regenerated children, but they're all at enmity with each other or they don't want to be with each other or they're in hypocrisy. Just, I mean, that's, what is that? That's not it. All right, so now the Lord graced Paul in a very special way. And we should all, as we're reading through these verses, just with your mic uh, muted, you should, we should say, Lord, Lord, lead me into this experience. This is not a small thing. Philippians 3 is our entrance into Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. All right, I'm going to read some verses which are not easy to read, uh, at least for me. Um, but, uh, you know, because of the environment where I am, but I'm there in the Bible, so I'm going to read them. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, for me, it is not irksome, but for you, it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the concision. He's referring to Judaizers. And we should all know that there is, a, there is a big trend, especially in Germany. I mean, just check it out a little bit. There are a lot of these ones coming up from Israel and influencing the believers in, uh, to start celebrating the Jewish holidays and start observing you know, Shabbat dinners, uh, things of the, of the ritualistic law. So then Paul says, for we are the circumcision. Now Paul's using the word circumcision in an interesting way. Okay. Um, does anyone, this, this is a little harder one. Does anyone know what, what Paul's saying here when he's saying that we are the circumcision? Anyone want to go for it? Circumcision, remember, you, this is simple. It's a cutting off a little part of the flesh. But when Paul says we are the circumcision, he's saying we have cut something off. So what Paul is saying here is, okay, we're going to come, come to it here. We're going to, we're going to see what was cut off by the true circumcision. The ones who serve by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus, because there are ones that are boasting, you know, they're Jewish or whatever, and have no confidence in the flesh. So there is this flesh that if cut off by us, as was cut off by our brother Paul, we will have a rich entrance into the one new man. Though I myself have something to be confident of in the flesh as well. If any other man thinks that he has confidence in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day, that was Norgans, of the race of Israel. That's his ethnicity. We all have an ethnicity, saints. I hope that none of us would be proud of our ethnicity. Of the tribe of Benjamin, this is a more specific uh, part. You know, the tribe of Benjamin was just right there above Judah. It's a part of the good land. I hope none of us would be, pr be proud of the country we're from or for the state we're from or for the, of the city we're from. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. Mm. We all have a heritage, our parents. As to the law of Pharisee, whatever we were raised in, whatever we accomplished, you know? You have all these ones under the law, but the Pharisees, oh, these were the ones that excelled 
in the law to a certain extent. As to zeal, persecuting the church, these were all of his former accomplishments. So, you know, we've all accomplished things, but that's all part of the flesh. Mm. As to the righteousness which is in the law become blameless. So Paul just gave a description of his flesh, and this is what he's saying here. We are the circumcision. Mm. Paul and his co-workers said, what we're what we're focusing on is not whether a little part, a little, a little piece of flesh has been cut off or not, but all of these aspects of our natural being, of our whatever we received. I just hope we would all be freed from whatever natural identity was assigned to us, maybe temp- just temporarily during this life, you know, in this age. I hope that we would just all be freed from it. Then we can say what Paul says in verse seven. But what things were gains to me? Hmm. It's no surprise that if you're from South Africa, you're proud of being South African. If you, mm-hmm. Paul, sorry, remind me, are you from England or the UK? Is that right? All right. It's, I mean, Paul is, Paul's, you've probably heard the national anthem. How often did you hear the national anthem growing up in school? Actually, not often. It's not a very patriotic country over here anymore. Okay. Right. Well, the county I live in is nicknamed God's Own County. <laughs> God's Own County. God's Own County. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like um, sounds like the country of Georgia. In Georgia, they say this. This is where this is where God's from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyways, but tell me, Paul. There are other things. Other things other outward factors influenced you to kind of be proud of being British. Is that, would that be correct? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we had our little achievements, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they put it right there in your hand. So we're all, you know, we were all just born blank sheets of paper, but little mm. by little, the environment we grew up in just said, make, makes you want to sing. And I'm proud to be an American. Well, no, we're not going to sing that. <laughs> we're going to say, and I aspire to be the circumcision <laughs> with no confidence in the flesh. <laughs> Hallelujah. What things were gains to me? These, you know what? United States of America, everything you wrote on me, I'm going to count that as lost. Put it in the trash can. That's what Paul did right here. These I have counted as lost. That's trash, refuse, dung. Throw it in the trash can on account of Christ. All right. Um, oh, man. Moreover, I also count all things to be lost on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, on account of whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I'm going to fast forward to the end of verse 9. He, Paul says, I, the beginning of verse 9, and be found in Saints, we are found in him. Beginning of verse 9, that means we're not found in our natural identity. We're not found. You know, even the Bible says in Galatians 3, you know, in the new man, once we're resurrected, there is no more male and female. Well, some of us, I'm looking at you, some of you were temporarily assigned to be females, and some of us were temporarily assigned to be males, but we shouldn't get used to that. That's not in our eternal identity. In the resurrection, remember the Lord told, it's not that way. So we shouldn't view each other, oh, I'm higher or whatever. No, no, that's not eternal. 
We want to be found in Christ. So um, now we'll turn it over to Trevor and we'll uh, hit the bronze serpent. So uh, right now we've got the bronze serpent. And if you, if you attended the third dive session, oh, I'm sorry, I'm learning how to count in German. It's this way. Okay, you don't do this and you don't do this. It's this. Okay, so the third dive session was on subduing the earth. Uh, we went into this part of the bronze serpent way, way more in depth. But I think, I think at least Paul and Nadine were both there for that. Is that true? I think so. I think so. Okay. So this is the thing. We've got to cover a lot of ground with the bronze serpent really quickly here. And one of the things we're going to do is basically what's amazing about the bronze serpent is uh, who, who it's actually depicting. Okay. So who is the serpent, Paul? Oh, the, the serpent is the Satan, right? Came in the form of the serpent. The, okay. Yeah. And so what you have right here, what we're going to do here is we're going to highlight this. Can you read that for me? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Mm. Okay. So you notice how it doesn't say the son of God must be lifted up. Mm. The Bible is very specific here. The son of man was lifted up. And so th the reason why this is, this is so significant is because God cannot die. But it was still his blood, which Nathaniel was hitting on earlier. So he died as a man, okay? And it, it's interesting when Nathaniel was hitting these two natures. I, I was in Zurich recently. Been on, been on a lot of trips recently, but I was in Zurich recently preaching the gospel and these Jehovah's Witness came up to me and they started questioning a bunch of stuff that we were saying. And, and then they asked, oh, how do you explain this verse? And I was like, well, not this one specifically. It was a different one. And I, and I said, well, actually, you have to understand that he's two natures. And they like completely freaked out that I said that. And the fact is, um, the fact is they're not saved because they don't believe that he's two natures. So um, this is the deal. Uh, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Paul, do you remember this story? It comes from Numbers 21. Yeah, yeah. You do? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Can you, can you give us, give us some of the, give us the scenario of this story? What happens? Well, the Israelites are in the wilderness and there's a bunch of snakes that keep biting them and they keep dying. So, uh, God tells Moses to make a serpent out of brass, is it? Or bronze? Uh, put it on a stick and lift it up. So whenever anyone who's been bitten looks at the stick, they will live. Not the stick, looks at the serpent and they will live. Yeah, yeah. Do, you know, do you know why God sent the fiery serpents? Do you know what was the reason? I don't remember that part. You know, Israel, they're always doing something wrong, you know, and, in, in, and so are we, you know. But the thing is, in that, in that story, they're rebelling against Moses, okay? Mm -hmm. And so God sends these fiery serpents and they start biting them, like you said, okay? And then this really weird thing happens where God's like, oh, hey, Moses, make this, make this bronze serpent and lift it up. And then if everybody looks at it, they'll be great, okay? And it's interesting because 
why does why does the Lord in this verse in verse fourteen refer to Himself as a serpent? Well, He's going to be lifted up on the cross, and whoever looks at Him will have life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but like, why is why is He a serpent, bro? That's like, oh yeah, yes, yeah, it's got to be in the flesh part, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so this is the deal with this. We're going to very quickly uh, run through this. And what we're going to hit here is the fact that the creator, God, will not deal with a creature, Satan, by himself as the creator. Okay, so the creator won't lower himself to deal with a creature directly. What he does is he works through this principle called the principle of incarnation and also the principle of creature deals with creature. And every Christian needs to know these two principles because it explains a whole lot of stuff, okay? So it's like, why are there so many starving people uh, when, when God's all powerful and he's all loving? Why doesn't he do something about it, okay? Well, if you don't know that God has limited himself to creature deals with creature and the principle of incarnation, then you don't have answers to questions like this, okay? So for sure, God is all-powerful. And for sure, he could have just squished Satan very easily. Satan rebels, squish, start over, okay? That, why didn't he do that, Paul? Creature deals with creature. Uh, that's what I'm talking about, bro. And so basically what God does is he wants to, instead of just showing that he's just all-powerful, okay, which, which he would have clearly shown to at least all the angels, I am all-powerful, squish, okay, um, he, wants, he wants to show his multifarious wisdom, okay? So God's desire is to show much, much more than that, than just that he's powerful. So what he does is he goes, okay, I'm going to allow Satan to continue uh, rebelling. And he's even going to join man uh, to his rebellion eventually. Eventually, Satan puts himself into man. And this is why the Lord in, in John 8, 44, refers to them as your father, the devil. Okay. So when we're born in the flesh, our father is the devil, and we're actually enemies of God. And this is, this is our condition, the moment that we come out of our, our, our mother's womb. And then also, he says in 1 John 3, 8, I'm just referencing these so you can, you can write them down. Uh, 1 John 3, 8, he who practices sin is of the devil, Okay. So there's, there's these uh, clear verses or indications. Even the Lord says, you brood of vipers. Uh, he's referring to, to other people as snakes. Okay. So this is, this is interesting when you, when you start looking at what the bronze serpent is. Because what the Lord did is he came in the likeness of the flesh of sin. This is a verse that, that, uh, that Nathaniel hit earlier. It's Romans 8, 3. And it doesn't say that he came as sin. Okay? He came in the likeness of the flesh of sin. 
So this is, this is very exact wording that the Bible uses. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that he's touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. And at the end of the verse, it says, yet without sin. So he, he came as a man. In Hebrews 2.14, he partook of flesh and blood. Okay. In, in John 1.14, in uh, John 1, 1, we, we know these verses by heart, hopefully, that, that he, the word became flesh. So all of these things, the Lord is becoming flesh, um, but he does not have sin. Okay, so this, this is interesting because if we go back to Genesis 3.15, which is one of my favorites. Okay, so Paul, can you read that one? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, but you will bruise him on the heel. Okay, and he's talking to the serpent, right? Yeah. Okay, so he says your seed, Paul. Who is your seed? The seed of, of Satan, so. Okay, so who is Satan's seed? Um, mankind. <laughs> totally, mankind. Okay. So, and then who is her seed in this verse? Christ. It's Christ. Okay. So eventually, eventually it's Christ, right? And so that's why actually there's, there's something really interesting. I, I, we're not going to get into it, but a few chapters later, when, when uh, Eve actually births a child, she names it Jehovah. She actually says, oh, it's Jehovah, because she thinks that that's the fulfillment of the verse in 15. But the problem is it wasn't yet. And so actually what she birthed was more seeds of Satan. Okay. So Paul, how, how did you, how did you get sin? By being born. <laughs> okay, bro. Wow. That was a hard question. Okay. How, how did Jesus become born yet without sin? Uh, he was incarnated. He was um, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay. Yeah. Actually, the answer to this question is pretty difficult because the, the Catholic Church argued about this for 500 years. Yeah. Okay. And eventually they, they came up with the Immaculate Conception. And a lot of people think that that was Jesus, but the Immaculate Conception was actually Mary's birth. And what they say is that Mary was born without sin because they know that sin is passed on through the parents, okay? So they could not reconcile this. How could Jesus be born from Mary but have no sin? And he can't take our sins away. He can't take our sins away unless he has no sin. So the Catholics, man, they're, they're, they're arguing about this for a few hundred years you know, it's a, that's a long debate, by the way. I, I, that's a really long debate. And so they come up with, well, oh, Mary, Mary was without sin. Mary was without sin. And now even in, even in their doctrine, they, they make Mary a, a deity. Okay. Which is oftentimes why they pray to Mary. And this all goes back to their confusion of how Christ could be born without sin. Okay. So, Paul, how, what's the answer to this? How could he be born without sin? 
because God can do it. <laughs> okay, so that's the thing. That's the thing that I, okay, I, I love the Bible. I love the Bible because the Bible shows us that God doesn't cheat the rules. He has set up some rules and he doesn't just do something because he's all powerful and he can do any miracle he wants. Okay. I used to think that it's like, Oh, just because, because he's God, you know, but actually what, what he did was he created this little loophole, a little back door in his creation. And this little loophole was the fact that sin is passed on through the male line. Jesus did not have a human father. Okay, so there's a way to prove this. So first of all, let's, let's go to 1 Peter 1.18. So Paul, now you can blame all of your problems on your dad. I'm just kidding. Okay, can you read, can you read 1 Peter 1.18? Knowing that it was not with corruptible things, with silver or gold, that you were redeemed from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers. Okay, Th this is interesting. The vain manner of life was handed down from your fathers. Now, the, the flip side of this is also a very interesting question that I have. Does the Bible ever say that Eve sinned? 1 Timothy 2.12 First Timothy two. Let's let's check it out. First Timothy two twelve. I think that's the verse. What does it say? Oh, you know, it's um, fourteen, verse fourteen. Oh, for fourteen. Yeah, okay, this is amazing, bro, because it says that she was deceived. Right? Does yeah. it use the word sinned? Well, having been deceived, has fallen into transgression. Right. Okay. Now, this is, this is my trick question for you, Paul. This is my trick question. If Adam didn't worship his wife, okay, and he didn't follow in her footsteps and eat the fruit, and they had children, would those children have sin? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so check this out. Look at this, bro. In Romans 5... 12 the bible is very clear where sin came from can you read romans 5 12 uh therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and through sin death and thus death passed on to all men because we have sinned because all have sinned okay so paul where did sin come from did it come from adam or eve one man so one man okay but bro that's not fair because eve ate it first <laughs> right so Eve ate the fruit first. Nobody, nobody, you know, argues that point. So Eve ate the fruit first and then Adam followed. But the Bible clearly traces sin back to Adam, hmm. which also allows for sin. Every single person that's ever been born has a human father, except Jesus. And Jesus just so happens to be the only person ever to be born without sin. Hmm. So what ends up happening is the Lord comes in the likeness of the flesh of sin. In other words, he looks like a serpent. He looks like all the other serpents, all the other seeds of the serpent. Okay. Their father is the devil, but he does not have, and actually the bronze serpent 
it does not have the serpentine nature of sin in it. Okay? It just looks like it. And so that's why he's so mysterious. You have this person that's walking on the earth, and he looks like a serpent, but he does not have the serpentine nature in him. And actually, his whole life, Satan is trying to get into him. He's trying to get into him. And the Lord is always, he's being tempted, all these things, and the Lord's always rejecting him, okay? And so what ends up happening is the Lord died as the bronze serpent because of our rebellious nature. And so this is one of the things that he died as. And this, this is awesome because he became a creature to deal with the creature. He did not violate the principles and the laws in his creation, but he actually worked in the, in the rule book, okay, and came and defeated Satan at his own level. How dope is that, Paul? That's pretty cool, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I think it's pretty cool. And actually, there's, there's a really clear verse to show this, and it's Hebrews 2.14. Okay, can you read this for me? Since therefore the children have shared in blood and flesh, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the might of death, that is, the devil. Okay, so bro, why did he put on flesh and blood? To destroy him who has the might of death. Yeah, bro, that's the reason why he became a creature. Hmm. He became a Christian, so a Christian. He became a creature so that he could destroy the devil who has the might of death. Okay, now, Paul, this is my question. Why did he say this to Nicodemus? Like, why would he pull it out in this conversation with Nicodemus in this back alley in the darkness of night? Why do you think, bro? I don't know. Uh, it's kind of, what's John 3 usually known as? Like the chapter, what's it about? Oh, the three, verse three, uh, 16, everyone. Goes For in. sure, everybody. I mean, everybody knows that verse, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so interestingly enough, yeah, a lot, of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things Jesus says in this one that, that I'm just like, man, this is crazy. Basically, Nicodemus was as good as it gets. Okay. Yeah. Nicodemus, he was so good. And Jesus actually tells him, he's like, yeah, but you have to be born again. Like, basically, you have to receive another life. And actually, when the bronze serpent is lifted, basically, I don't care how good you are, you ate from the wrong tree. And your good is actually still Satan. Your best, your absolute best is still of the wrong nature. And actually what you need, you need to partake of the divine nature. You need to be born again with my life. Okay. So in, in with the bronze serpent, there's this negative aspect of killing Satan. Okay. And then later on, we're going to talk about the grain of wheat, which is a more positive aspect of releasing his life but the whole point was nicodemus it doesn't matter how good you are you need 
to you still need the bronze serpent. You still need to look to me because you still have the serpentine nature in you. And eventually John 3 ends with the divine romance in 3.30, right? And actually, I must, he must increase, but I must decrease. So there's this, there's this element of, of us dying, okay, and the Lord, the Lord increasing, me decreasing, him increasing for the purpose of the divine romance, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it off to Nathaniel now. I think that was, that was good enough. I don't know. Oh, bronze, bro, sorry, quickly. Bronze represents judgment. So the Lord was lifted and he was judged by the Father to fulfill all of this bronze serpent. Okay, go ahead, Ron. Okay. So uh, we just kind of cover briefly the Lamb of God and then uh, go on to the final uh, status in which the Lord died, uh, which was, um, again, this is not, the sequence is not thematic. It's just how we're covering it. Uh, and that, that is the, the grain of wheat. So uh, just to recap, um, he died as uh, the last Adam, as the firstborn of all creation. Uh, he died as the peacemaker. He died as a man in the flesh. He died as the bronze serpent, as the lamb of God, and as the grain of wheat. So uh, as the Lamb of God, we can go to John one twenty nine and um, let's see, Renata, could you read this for us? John one twenty nine. Mm -hmm. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, it's okay. The Lamb of God. So does this remind you of anything in the Old Testament? The word lamb. Lamb? Well, in the Old Testament, I know places where it talks about God being our shepherd and we're the lambs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Um, for example, in Exodus, the Passover. Yeah. Oh, oh, that too. The Passover, right? Yeah. I mean, so the Passover... Uh, the children of Israel were meant to kill the lamb, right? Yeah. And then the blood was put on the doorpost mm -hmm. and they ate the lamb, right? And we'll talk about that at the end of this. Um, Trevor's got a really good point on that. Um, but actually in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Christ as our Passover. So not even, he doesn't just say our Passover lamb, he says our Passover. And so Christ is actually the fulfillment of the entire Passover, including uh, the Passover lamb. But here it's interesting, it says the lamb of God. And this is a very um, significant title. And it's one of the titles that is actually carries forward all the way into eternity. And we see this in Revelation 21 and 22, he is the lamb. Okay. Um, notice it says, it's a, no, what does it say? Does it say it takes away the sins of the world? The sin, singular. So it's singular, right? So it doesn't say sins, it says sin. Um, that's significant because to take away the sin of the world implies um, he is our, it's, it's deeper than just our actions. It refers 
much more deeply to our sinful nature. And it also implies the world, it implies the flesh, it implies the old man, it implies all these negative things. So when it says the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world, this is quite a statement. And, in, and if you recall, in the Old Testament, how did people, where did people go to worship God? To the temple. Right. So first it was the tabernacle and then the temple. Yeah. Right? And how would they worship God? They would bring offerings. Right. And many times the offerings were lambs, sometimes they were bulls, and sometimes other things, right? Okay. Um, okay, this is, this is uh, very interesting. You know, in John 1, 14, it says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So in this one person, you have the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And in this one person as the lamb, you have the fulfillment of all the offerings. So he's quite a person. And we can see this actually further in Hebrews 9, uh, 26. Um, you know, it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And that's why you had to have all the offerings. The offerings were slain, the blood was shed, and that uh, was kind of a covering and, a, and, a, and a, an appeasement to God, but it, it covered, it didn't take away, okay? Hebrews 9.26 says that um, he was manifested for the putting away of sin through the sacrifice of himself. So in the past, what you would have is you would have all these animals being offered. Through the sacrifice of himself, he fulfills all those offerings and becomes the unique sacrifice as the Lamb of God. So one of the things about him as the Lamb is that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament offerings. Today, we don't go to the temple, we don't come together and we don't offer a bull or a lamb. What do we do? How do we worship God today? Any of you can answer. The answer is very simple. There's just a lot of things going through my head right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. it's, it's, it's not a fair question. I, 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 I agree. Um, can I, if you look at the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24. Let's read that and then we'll, we'll, we'll limit our discussion to that. So can, can you read that for us? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truthfulness. Yeah. So how do you worship God today? In the spirit. Right. So in spirit and truthfulness. So geographically or locationally, if I can use that word, where did people worship God in the Old Testament? In the tabernacle. Right. And today, where do people worship God? In our spirit. So you see, there's a shift. Oh. With the okay. Old Testament, we were geographically, we would go to a certain place, right? Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, we worship him first and foremost in our spirit. 
that's mm -hmm. where worship happens. That's where the true worship that God desires happens. It happens in our spirit. You can be at home. You can be somewhere else. If you're not in your spirit, you, there's not true worship. Mm -hmm. Then it's very interesting. It says, and truthfulness. Okay. What would you think? What do you think truthfulness is? Take it. Any of you can take a guess. He's the truthfulness. Okay, so you could say it's this word here is not just the word for reality in the in the or truth. It's truthfulness. So in other words, it's the divine reality manifested it's the divine reality being lived out as our genuineness and sincerity yeah so today who is the divine reality christ right he says i am the way the truth and the life i'm the way the reality and the life he is the reality when he as the reality is worked into us and we express him, that is truthfulness. Mm -hmm. That is genuous and sincerity of our daily walk lived out. Mm -hmm. So today, we worship God where? In our spirit. In our spirit. What do we worship him with? Christ. Christ. Right. Christ as the reality of all the offerings constituted into us, which then is expressed as truthfulness. So it's amazing in these two words, spirit and truthfulness, you have the fulfillment and the reality of worship in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, you had what? You had the tabernacle and the offerings. In the New Testament, Christ tabernacled among us and as the lamb of god he took away the sin of the world and now that tabernacle has become enlarged to become the body of christ and he is the reality of the all uh, uh, he as the reality of all the offerings is being constituted into us so that we express him and represent him in our living as truthfulness so there's a mm -hmm. lot in those two words spirit and mm -hmm. truthfulness i hope when you see those words now you just to stop <laughs> and enjoy those those two words. There's a lot there. Okay, so um, I got kind of carried away with that. Uh, concerning the lamb, we need to go on to First Peter one twenty. As the lamb. So let's read, um, let's see, Nadine, can you read for us 19 and 20? Okay. But with blood, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spots, the blood of Christ, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has been manifested in the last of times for your sake. Okay, wow. <clears throat> so, first of all, I find it just very touching that Peter refers to him as the lamb. I think there's a lot of feeling there. But then he says, the lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Okay. 
this indicates <clears throat> that before the foundation of the world, the, the lamb was not a backup plan that God introduced, okay? It wasn't a backup plan that God introduced because man fell and he's like, okay, I got to think of something. He was foreknown as the lamb before the foundation of the world because God, as Trevor was saying, he was, Christ was offered through the eternal spirit. So God, it does not just exist in time. He exists outside of time and space. And in eternity past, he foreknew there would be the need for there to be the lamb. Okay. And so as the, the, this lamb was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world, manifested in the last of times for our sake. Now let's go on to Revelation 13.8. Okay, so can you read that for us, Nadine? Okay. And all those dwelling on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain from the foundation of the world. What? <laughs> what? How? It says he was slain from the foundation of the world. How did that happen? This is like the uh, salvation thing, regeneration in a lot of time. <laughs> Yeah. Know, that's <laughs> yeah, this is mysterious. That's the first thing. This is just mysterious. Um, but uh, again, from the standpoint of God, uh, we can say he was slain from the foundation of the world. From our standpoint, um, he was in time. He was, as it is depicted in Revelation 5, 6, John sees a lamb having just been slain, okay? And that's the scene right after um, uh, Christ's ascension. So in time, he was slain at a particular point, but from God's perspective, the lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was slain from the foundation of the world. If you want to know exactly why that is, you know, we can have a discussion with God later, you know, in the future. Um, just a few more things I wanted to point out about the lamb. To me, it's just very precious. In Revelation 7, 17, it says that the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and guide them to springs of waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, uh, and, and in Revelation 14, 4, he's the lamb that we follow. We follow the lamb wherever he may go. In Revelation 19, 7, we have the marriage of the lamb. In Revelation 21, 9, we have the wife of the lamb. In Revelation 22, we have the throne of God and of the lamb. Okay? So this is... This is uh, he will be the lamb. He was foreknown as the lamb, I mean, in eternity past. And for eternity future, we will know him and love him and worship him and appreciate him as the lamb. Because while our memory of sin will be no more, 
in eternity future, we will definitely have some kind of uh, registration that there was a cost, a great, at great cost, he um, is the Lamb of God. So this is, uh, him as the Lamb of God is not just a narrow uh, um, description of his redemptive work. It actually spans from eternity past to eternity future. Okay. So at this point, I'm going to turn over to Trevor to talk about eating the lamb, and then we're going to go up, go up and finish with the grain of wheat. Okay, so at this point, um, what we're going to do is we're going to go to Exodus, and I've always really enjoyed this part. Um, Nadine might know the brother that I'm talking about. Because when I went to South Africa, um, there was a brother that had us over for dinner or for lunch or whatever. And we, we walked in and, and when we walked in, he, he made us, he made us uh, very aware of the verse that talks about you have to eat everything put before you. She's already laughing. And, <laughs> um, and, so, and so we're like, oh, okay, yeah, amen. And, and then uh, he has this like big soup pot, you know, and he's like, oh, can, can some of the, can some of the girls like help me, you know, stir the soup. And so they come over and they grab the little handle of soup and, and they start stirring it. And then these hooves start coming out and like other strange body parts. And he, he thought it was this hilarious joke. Uh, he ended up eventually, it was a lamb that he cooked and, and, um, it gave me an entirely new appreciation. Um, I'll, I'll save you the story about him pulling out the brain, but um, it gave me an entirely uh, new appreciation for in Exodus 12 at the Passover when the Lord tells them to eat the whole lamb. You know, you, you've probably had lamb chops before and you're like, oh, lamb's great, you know. But then when you, when you start seeing other body parts that you're not used to eating, uh, Exodus 12 becomes a lot more real. Paul, Paul looks so, Paul's ready for dinner at this point. So <laughs> um, basically, can Nadine, um, can, you, can you read verse 8? And by the way, I didn't eat any of it. And I, I, I hope the Lord will forgive me for just, <laughs> anyway. So Nadine, um, can, you, yeah, can you read verse 8 and 9? And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, its head with its legs and with its inward parts. Okay, so this is interesting because you can, um, you can break this down to how we... You, you dispositionally enjoy a certain part of the Lord by your disposition. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on, to be honest with you, I'm more of a, I'm more of a head kind of guy, even though in, in real life, I didn't want to eat the head of the lamb, but, but spiritually, I, I like the head a lot. I, I like the, the knowledge of the Bible um, you know, learning more about the Lord, all these things. 
then there's then there's other people that really like God's move. And and so they're more leg people, you know. All of their speaking has to do with like God's move. And you know, he wants to go here and he wants to go there. And and then there's other people that are just really lovey-dovey, you know, they just they just love the Lord and and all they talk about is loving the Lord. Okay. The problem is in our experience, if if we only eat one part, uh, we become very unbalanced. And what we need to do is we need to eat the entire lamb. And this this will balance our experience in following the Lord. So what this is a more of an experiential thing. I, I very much was helped by this when it was told to me that that I need, I need to get into the inward parts of Christ. I also need to uh, get into the parts of the word having to do with his move and not just uh, trying to know more about him or know more things. Okay. So it's not that any one of them is, is negative. It's just too much of something can become negative. And so what we're going to show you really quickly, um, this, this is actually in a believer's experience showing you that the lamb can actually be all these things to you. So this is in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Uh, Paul, can you, can you read this for me? Are you unmuted? Okay. Paul moved. Uh I don't think we can hear you, Paul. Sorry. Can you still hear my hearing? That's good. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, I had to move. Uh, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay. So this, this verse is talking about uh, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's really, that's really the head, you know, you're, you're eating, you're eating the wisdom of God. Okay. Um, Nadine, can you, can you read, uh, Revelation 14, four? Uh, these are they who have not been defiled with women for they are virgins. These are they who follow the lamb wherever he may go. These were purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Okay, so this is this is talking about the Lamb, and it's following the Lamb wherever He goes. So the thing is, the Lamb wants to go to the whole inhabited earth, and so we need to follow Him wherever He goes. And we actually, when we follow the Lamb wherever He goes, those are the legs. We actually um, end up bringing the inward parts and the wisdom, the head. Uh, to those places. Okay, and then the last one, uh, Renata, can we can we hit uh, Philippians 1.8 really quickly? For God is my witness, how I long after you all in the, all in the inward parts of Christ Jesus. Okay, so how could Paul say something like this? I, I long after all of you in the inward parts of Christ Jesus. Paul's inward parts had become Christ's inward parts. Mm. And so this is, this is something, Paul's an amazing example of someone who ate all three parts of the lamb. Yeah. 
And so in our experience, this is something that we need to do. So he died as the lamb. And at this part, we're going we're gonna to finish by talking about the grain of wheat. And this part is pretty crazy. Um, Nadine, can you, can you do uh, John 12, 24? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, how would, how would you guys define what being alone is? Nadine, what would, what would you say would cause someone to feel alone? If you are the only one. I mean, that's, that's a real, yeah, for sure. You know, a lot of times it's like, if you don't have friends, um, sometimes you have friends, but sometimes you have so many friends that you don't have any real friends. You know? Yeah. More like uh, acquaintances. What's up? It's more like acquaintances. Like yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like on Facebook, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends on Facebook. Um, but the thing is, you can still feel very, very alone. Yeah. Okay. So oftentimes we're like, oh, you know, like when you go back to Genesis and you, you look at what God's saying to Adam and he creates Adam and then he says, well, it's not good for man to be alone. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense because there was no other person, right? And so Adam's got nobody to talk to. I mean, he had, he had uh, at least he probably had some dogs, you know, man's best friend. But, you know, he had all the animals, but God still, God still, because Adam didn't have anything that matched him, uh, the animals didn't count. He, he counted it as alone. And we know that Adam is a type of Christ. So when God looks at Adam, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. That's a reflection of himself and his issue that he is alone and he doesn't want to be alone. What's interestingly enough, what's, what's super interesting about John 12, 24 to me is the fact that the word alone, he has tons of people to talk to. Right? Yeah. So why is he still saying that he's alone? Because he's the only God man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nadine. <laughs> Okay, so Nadine's right, but the, the, fact, the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is he still considered himself alone mm. because there was nothing that matched him. Nothing matched mm. him. Okay, so Adam, Adam looks at Eve and he says, this time, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. When Eve, when Eve is taken out of Adam. And this is interesting because that happens after, after, the Lord dies on the cross is his life is taken out of him. His side is opened and the church is built right in the same way that Eve was. So we've gone over this in, in previous dive sessions, but I really want to focus on this alone aspect. He is alone. And then we have to focus on what will make him not alone. Okay. So, John 12, 24, he clearly states that he's alone and he doesn't want to be alone. But then, Paul, what does he say he needs to do so that he won't be alone? Hold 
Oh, Paul, Paul, I can't hear you, bro. I don't know what's wrong with you. And then go into the ground. Yeah, bro, he's got to die. Okay. Okay, so when I, when I was growing up, um, oftentimes, you know, you hear in church that our job as believers is to glorify God. Okay. And, and this is correct. Uh, the question I love to ask Christians is how do you glorify God? And what we need to what we need to do is we need to see how the Lord glorified the Father and the Father glorified the Lord because they were one and they were kind of going back and forth with this glory thing. So we need to figure out what glory is. So Renata, if if you want to uh, glorify yourself, what would you do? I don't know. Tell everyone how cool I am. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, we like, we like, you know, if someone, if someone um, wants glory, they express themselves yeah. in some way, you know, if you just sit on the sofa and you don't say anything, uh, nobody's going to glorify you. Nobody's going to be like, oh, wow, you know, we're not a wow, you know, and so you have to do something to receive glory from men, <clears throat> you have to do something, which means you have to express yourself. It's very easily proven that glory is God's expression. So that means that I have to express God if I want to glorify him. How can I express God if he is not making me the same as he is? If I don't have his life and I don't have his nature, there's no way I can give him glory. It's impossible. You following me, Paul? Yep. Okay. So what's interesting here? Let's go. Let's go to. Um, let's go back to that amazing chapter, John three. John three sixteen. Okay, Paul. What does it say? You you probably know this by heart. So love the world that he gave his only begotten son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life okay so in this verse paul it says the only begotten son what does that mean And eternally brought into being is the, the way I have heard it. But right, it's such right. a weird word. You, <laughs> you've you've probably been hanging out with Nathaniel or something if you say something like that. Okay. <laughs> but but honestly, honestly, it says only. It says only, oh, yeah. right? So if if I'm the only son of someone, that's it. There's only one. Yeah. Okay. And then this is the first time the Lord was incarnated. The first time he came into the world. He's the only begotten son. Okay. Then what happens in Hebrews 1.6 is he comes back again. And when he comes back, can you read verse 6? When he brings again the firstborn into the inhabited earth, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Okay. 
So now he's coming back again into the inhabited earth, and now he is the firstborn. I thought he was the only. So we have a problem because it sounds like something changed. Okay. It sounds like he was the only begotten and he still is. This is where it gets super confusing, but that he's also the firstborn. Okay. So let's get in, let's get into this for a second. The Lord, I, I found some really cool verses, Paul. I can't wait to show you the, the Lord uh, you know, actually, let's go to Matthew 17. This is interesting. There was something, it, you know, if you focus on what a grain of wheat is, okay, what it is, it is, it has a shell and its life is hidden within that shell. And the only way that that fruit or that tree or that wheat will ever be able to reproduce itself is if it dies. It needs to fall into the ground and then that shell breaks open and then a new plant comes out and then it can bear fruit. Okay. Which is why the Lord says, I need to be like a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. Okay. There is a life within him. There's a life within the Lord that he cannot wait to release. He is so excited about this. And, and why don't you read, why don't you read verse two? Actually, read, uh, uh, this is the Mountain of Transfiguration. You, you, yeah, just read verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. Mm. Oh, okay, so literally the Lord, the Lord is walking around on the earth, and he has, he has a, a light in him that is like the sun. Okay. And it's being shielded by everybody. It's being shielded from everybody. Like nobody can see it because he, because actually he's, he came as a serpent, you know? And so this is, this is the thing. What, what he needs to do. And so he, he shows them this. He's like, Oh, by the way, you know, I don't know what it looked like, but it's sometimes you have to use sound effects. And so he just, he just goes, you know, and all of a sudden, and then he's like, he's like, oh, wait, actually, I'm just going to zip back up. And so he zips back up. And then, and then, you know, I'm sure these, these three, these three disciples are just like, what in the world just happened? Like, what was that? Okay. And actually, when you get into the mountain of transfiguration, I'm still asking, what was that? Okay. Because it, it was crazy. Now, the, the other thing that happens here is the Lord in Luke 12, he actually says this really cool phrase. And this was one of those verses I found today. Yeah, Luke 12, 49 and 50. Um, can you read these, bro? Uh, yeah, go ahead and start reading them. That it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am pressed until it is accomplished. Okay, so this is talking about he's, he desires a fire to be cast on the earth. This fire is the divine life within him. Okay, and he desperately wants it to be cast on the earth. And what he actually ends up doing is he ends up going to the cross and, and his death 
is a life releasing fire on the earth. Okay. And this, this is, the, this is what he's talking about, but I have a baptism to be baptized with baptism means immersion. It's being immersed into something. Okay. So what he's being immersed into is a death that you and I can, will never be able to comprehend. Okay. He gets immersed so far into death that he actually defeats death. And then he gets to take the keys of death and Hades before he resurrects. Mm. Okay. This is something that he and the father only know you and I will never experience it, but he goes into this death. But the thing is his whole life, it says at the end of this and how I am pressed until it is accomplished. His flesh was literally pressing him. Okay. And wasn't, wasn't the garden like referred to as like an oil press, like the garden of Gethsemane or something, you know, it means oil press. So he's, bro, he's getting pressed. Okay. And, and he wants this thing to be released so badly. Right. Okay. So this is his whole life. And actually what ends up happening is now you have a whole bunch of verses because he actually says, let's go back to, let's go back to John 12 here, John 12. And we have to read it in the context. So can you, uh, why don't you start with 23 and uh, I'll just tell you when to stop. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But mm. if it dies, it bears much fruit. Right. He who loves his soul life loses it. And he who hates his soul life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also my servant will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me out of this hour. But for this reason, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Okay. Okay, bro. This is, this is, woo, bro. There's a lot of stuff in here. Okay. Basically, how, how is God going to be glorified? And actually, when, can I ask you when Jesus was glorified? Mm. At what point in time was Jesus glorified? Yes, you did say resurrection. I don't think your mic picked up on it, but here we go. So what you have here, let, we're going to go through a couple verses really quickly. Th these are just a few verses you can write down. So 739 also says that the spirit is not yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here again, there's an aspect of the eternal spirit that needs to, it needs to pick up some things before it can be given to you, okay? So the spirit was not yet because he had not yet been glorified, okay? Then you go to Luke 24, 26. Uh, no, sorry, that's 16. What happened? Uh, okay, can you read this, bro? 26. Necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. 
Okay. So he suffered these things and then he entered into his glory. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that happened on his resurrection. Okay. Renata, can you read Acts 3.13? The God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Okay, so this is, this is really interesting. He, in Acts, it says that the father glorified his son. He glorified him, okay? And this happened when the Lord resurrected, okay? When the Lord resurrected, he became the life-giving spirit. And then this is the, this is the awesome part. If you want to know how to glorify the Father. Okay, if you want to know how to glorify the Father, you got to go to John 15. Mm -hmm. Can you, uh, Nadine, can you read 8? Sorry, y'all. Um, in, uh, in this is my Father glorified. That you my truth, and so you will become my disciples. Okay. Uh, basically, what's what's really cool about this is in John 15, what it shows us is that the way the Father is glorified is by having more sons. Mm -hmm. The more fruit that you produce by by the death. Okay, so the Lord obviously died. And when he resurrected, everybody got regenerated, yeah. right? Eternally, correct? So this is according to 1 Peter 1, 3 that we went over before. Everybody got regenerated. And so therefore, the Father was glorified. Mm. Okay, so what's, what's really cool is now, now that we see like how the Lord, how the Lord died as the grain of wheat, he fell into the ground, and then his life was released as soon as he resurrected. Now let's get into the practical really quickly. Nadine, can you think of some verses that like kind of go along with this in our experience? I mean, John 15 is actually talking to us. We the more the more sons uh, that are become born again, the more the, the father gets glory. Okay, so the vine. Those verses, I think, is it John fourteen or sixteen? Was that not the direction you're thinking? Oh, I mean, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. How about how about this way? It, what's interesting in in John twelve is immediately after he says the grain of wheat needs to fall on the ground and die, it immediately starts talking about losing your soul life. Mm. Oh. Why does he do that? Because that's a form of death, like the, the same way the grain had to die. Yeah, you, you have to die. So now yeah. it's like, pick up your cross and follow me. So this is, this is what's really interesting. So now we have, this is, this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. It's verse 8. Nadine, can you read verse 8? 
We are pressed on every side, but not constricted, unable to find a way out, but not utterly without a way out. It sounds very poetic, doesn't it? But the reason, the reason I like this, this verse is there is no way you can experience this verse without having a vision. Hmm. Because a vision actually constrains you. Yeah. And so if I have no vision, I can find a way out. I just, I'm just going to leave, you know, and I'll get out of this situation. But maybe the Lord has put you in a situation and it's, it's pressing you. And just like the Lord, he followed the father's will. And the father's will was for him to go through this process. Mm. And by doing that, it produced much fruit. And so I love 2 Corinthians 4, 8, because it, we're unable to find a way out, but we're not utterly without a way. It's not like I'm locked in a room and there's no way out and the room is closing. Okay. It's more like, it's more like maybe there's a gate and restricted is the way. Can uh, Nadine, can you read 13 and 14? This is Matthew 7. Enter in through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. Because narrow is the gate and constricted is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Okay, narrow, narrow is the way that leads to life. So we are, we are being constricted, but like what Nathaniel said earlier, when we're actually uh, dying according to not the, the original Adam, but, but actually we're dying according to Christ and his death, uh, there's a sweetness to it. And so although I'm being restricted, I'm still receiving life. Okay. Now, this is a cool one. So this one's, this one's for Paul. Okay, you know John 3.16, but do you know 1 John 3.16? Oh, oh my goodness, what's this? Because it sounds very similar. Can you read 1 John 3.16? In this we know love, that he laid down his life on our behalf, and we ought to lay down our lives on behalf of the brothers. Oh man, that sounds like I have to do the same thing he did. So this is, this is interesting. So he loved the whole world and gave his only son, right? And so if I, if I want to follow the Lord, I need to lay down my life on behalf of the brothers, okay? So a lot of times I'm put with people that I don't get along with, just, just straight up. And actually, if you want to follow the Lord and, and have this produced in you, the best way to do it is to try to be one with other believers. Oneness, oneness actually expresses God more than anything else. Oneness is the thing that glorifies God. Right. So actually, that's why in 1 Corinthians 14, when it says someone walks into the meeting, these are believers meeting in oneness and they, they see the meeting and they say, surely God is among you and they'll fall down on their face. Yeah. Okay. Because what, what they're seeing is an expression of God. How can all these different ethnicities and cultures 
and, and languages and all these things, how can they meet as one? And there's a harmony there and there's a love amongst them. How can they do that? The world's never seen that. Mm -hmm. Only God could create that. Only God could be here. Yeah. Okay. So this, this is, and I'm just going to rattle off some more verses. We're not going to look them up. First Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I die daily. Second Corinthians 4, 12, death in me, but life in you. In Philippians uh, 3.10, he talks about being conformed to his death. And lastly, lastly, Paul, where can I find glory? If I want to, bro, if you and I want to go find it, where can we find it? There's a verse that tells us where to go, bro. Oh. This is awesome. It's Ephesians 3.21. It's the last verse. Can you read that? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, bro. So glory is found in the church. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, a lot of times footballers and, and American football players and stuff, they come off the pitch and they say, oh, I just give all the glory to God. Glory is not found on the football pitch. Yes. It is found in the church. Amen. Okay. So this is, this is basically, um, I don't know if Nathaniel wants to say anything else. This is the seven things that Christ died as on the cross to produce the church, which is where the glory is found. So Nathaniel, what do you got? Well, I, I think we need to wrap up. I'll just say that um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it yeah. says that um, uh, who for uh, uh, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured right. the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And I would say this verse perhaps characterizes uh, everything that we have gotten into over the last uh, three sessions on the cross. There was a joy that was set before the Lord. And as Trevor was pointing out, this joy really is the church it's the enlargement of himself it's the christ that daniel pointed out in first corinthians um 12 12 uh god didn't want to be alone and he knew what it would cost to gain his reproduction and that joy set before him was enough it was worth it to endure the cross and to despise the shame and because he did he now has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God and he's administrating the entire universe. And as our high priest, he's praying for us and ministering to us so that we can run and finish the race and the course that is set before us. So um, anyway, I, I think it's just the Lord that we would finish on this note. You know, and I think it's in Matthew there, the Lord is compared to a merchant who finds a pearl of great worth and sells all that he has to 
to to to get that pearl and um here there it's the pearl here it's the joy this is the church so um anyway wonderful Amen. thank you lord